Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's premier marketplace for audiobooks. Go to audible.com and find hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in every genre imaginable. And you can play them on just about any device, be it your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, you name it. And how about this deal, folks, going on right now? For listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. You can get audiobooks by authors who have been on this show. Go get Stone Arabia, the novel by Dana Spiata. Or how about Inside Scientology by Rolling Stone investigative reporter Janet Reitman. Or what about Blueprints for Building Better Girls by Elisa Chappelle. All are available over at Audible. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a great deal, everybody. Available to you right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the program. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. My guest today is Cecil Castellucci. Uh, it's a great name, isn't it? I believe it's Italian. It sounds refined. It sounds kind of musical and rolls off the tongue. And uh, it also sounds tough and possibly uh, somewhat gangsterish. So Cecil has written a lot of books for young adults. Uh, she is, I guess you could say, a YA author with books like Boy Proof, The Queen of Cool, and most recently, First Day on Earth. She's written uh, also a graphic novel called The Plain Janes. She's done a lot of different stuff. And uh, she went to the Fame High School in New York City, which I find interesting. Uh, I think it was the Fame High School. It's a performing arts high school of some renown, and she was classmates with famous people who went to the Fame High School. So see how that works? So she and I are going to talk about that a little bit. She's very uh, talented and very dedicated, creative person. She's been a musician. Uh, kind of a cult hero musician uh, and, you know, had some college radio hits back in the day. Her band was called Nerdy Girl. So you may be familiar, possibly, if you're into indie rock. And uh, she was the lead singer and went by the name Cecil Seaskull. That was her performer name. The music is available on iTunes if you're interested. You can go get Nerdy Girl albums. So I figured I'd play some for you just so that you can hear it. 
just a portion of a song. Let's do that. Let's make Cecil blush a little bit. Here's a portion of a song called Casanova. It's the first track off of the album Twist Her. All right, here goes. You fuck like a man, but you act like a boy. it so angry so young so boy crazy so heartbroken and uh it's funny to listen to because it reminds me of myself at that age kind of takes you back to late teens early 20s and uh, it strikes me that women just have a more advanced emotional vocabulary than men uh you know when it comes to uh like relationships and life in general possibly and i'm speaking generally you know this seems to be the case generally speaking uh and the reason i say that is because i think about myself and you know, imagine that if I had any musical talent and was in a rock band somehow when I was 22, uh, you know, God only knows what we'd be listening to. You know, we'd we'd be listening to a song called maybe if I get drunk, I'll have the courage to talk to you. That would have been my radio hit, my one hit single on college radio. So speaking of funny musical memories and embarrassing stuff, uh, from your early twenties, uh, I have one handy, which probably comes as no surprise. And, uh, I remember, uh, going to see a concert. I think this was like my freshman or sophomore year in college. I think I was probably like 19. And I think it was a, I think it was a Dave Matthews concert, which, uh, which somehow makes me uh, a little bit embarrassed. I feel like I'm dating myself. Uh, this was like 1994. I was sort of a hippie at that point, or, or I was, I was considering it, uh, you know, sort of an experimental phase in my life. And, uh, on this night at this concert, it was the first time I'd ever taken MDMA. And, uh, I didn't really, you know, have any idea what it was. I had no frame of reference. Uh, you know, I was young and, and it was kind of that time in my life where I was ready for anything. And, uh, you know, frankly, I wasn't all that bright. And so somebody gives me this thing and I'm at this concert and 20 minutes, you know, 20 minutes later it hits me and it's easily the best I've ever felt ever. And I remember wanting to like hug everyone and I'm like talking to strangers easily and I'm extremely happy. And, you know, then there's this band playing like really loudly on stage and, you know, (laughs) there's sort of this like elfin man dancing to a fiddle player, which, which seemed amazing at the time. And, uh, the next thing I know, I remember there's this extremely tall girl standing next to me on my right, you know, like an attractive girl, but like four, you know, four or five inches taller than me, exceptionally tall. You know, that's how I remember it anyway. Uh, and I'm almost six feet tall. So this is a pretty tall girl. And, uh, it turns out as a matter of coincidence that she has taken, uh, ecstasy too. And so, you know, within minutes we're, we're sort of like casually holding hands and talking to each other. Like we've known each other our entire lives, uh, maybe even longer. And I'm, I've never even seen this girl before. I have no idea who she is. She doesn't know me. And it was like, we were just instantly together. And I remember, uh, at some point, like right in the middle of the concert, we decide to leave and we're going to go for a walk and, uh, you know, it's winter, it's freezing out. And we walked onto campus at, uh, you know, the university of Colorado in Boulder. And in the middle of campus, there's this outdoor theater, uh, for like plays, you know, there's like a Shakespeare festival in Boulder every summer. So it's this beautiful theater with stone benches and uh, it's completely empty. And it's probably like midnight or so there's a full moon and I'm sitting there with this girl. 
this extremely tall girl, and we're having uh, this really deep and chemically enhanced conversation. And somewhere in the middle of it, she looks at me and she tells me that she can sing and that it's a big secret in her life. And, uh, you know, she's kind of like pouring her heart out to me, telling me her, her secret dreams. And she's like, you know, I've, I've never told anyone this, but I can sing. And I remember being blown away and, and telling her, you know, like, well, then you have to sing. You know, you have to chase your dream. It's your destiny and all this stuff. I was just out of my head and, and just so earnest and so stoned. And I really felt like it was a pivotal moment in history. Like I felt like this was it. This girl's life was going to change because of this. And so I'm like encouraging her. And she goes up onto this stage in this outdoor theater to sing, to like give her first performance. And, uh, you know, she gives me what is essentially a private concert in this Shakespeare theater, middle of the night. I'll never forget it. I'm sitting there alone on this stone bench and she's up on stage, uh, you know, under a full moon and she opens her mouth to sing. And the song that she sings, it's from the 1980s. And it's a, I think it's a Quincy Jones song called just once. Uh, not sure if you remember it. It's, it was on a lot of soap operas, like as a soundtrack, I feel like. And, uh, it was kind of like light rock. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? And I think the vocalist, if I remember correctly, is actually James Ingram. So I'll play you a little bit of it just to refresh your memory in case you're not familiar. I did my best, but I guess my best wasn't good enough. Cause here we are back where we were before. <laughs> Seems uh. nothing ever changes. We're back to being strangers. Wondering if we ought to stay or head on out the door. Oh, man. Just once, can we figure out what we keep doing wrong? So, yeah, uh, that, there you have it. That's, that's it. Uh, not sure if you remember that one, but I, you know, I kid you not, that is what she sang to me. This actually happened. And uh, I remember sitting there and she's singing me this song and she's singing it completely without irony, like utterly zero irony. And what's worse is that I, w- I was listening to it completely without irony. And uh, I think I was almost in tears. I was so happy for this girl. Like it was a, it was a big moment. I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And that's sort of the problem with drugs is that they render your critical faculties completely inoperable. Uh, you know, like all of a sudden everything is like capital G great, no matter what. So I'm sitting there thinking that I'm witnessing one of the greatest singers of my generation, like officially breaking out of her shell. And, and you know, moreover that I've helped her to do it, that I've, I've helped to change her life. Uh, and not only that, I'm also in love with her deeply. Uh, <laughs> I like basically thought that I had found my soulmate. Uh, but of course the sad truth is that that was pretty much it. That was that, that's the lame truth. Uh, you know, is that we like, we, we never really hung out again. I think we basically like woke up the next morning on some futon. And, uh, I think I was still wearing my clothes, which makes it even lamer. And I remember feeling so terribly awkward. Uh, this girl was just so tall and I didn't really know who she was and she didn't know who I was. And, you know, I should say too, it's not that being tall is bad. I don't want to like make tall girls feel self-conscious. It's just that as a guy, it's rare to be around women who are that much taller than you are or at least for me anyway. So just like proportionately and in light of uh, my consumptions, it just felt strange. And so, uh, yeah, I, you know, I never really saw this girl again, 
maybe once or twice around town, you know, like very briefly and in passing throughout college. But uh, CU was a big school. And I, you know, I remember when I saw her, it was it was always kind of strange for both of us because uh, we never really knew what to say. We, we couldn't recreate the uh, the moment. We couldn't recreate that same energy. It was all gone. It was a one-time shot. And uh, to this day, I have no idea if she ever wound up pursuing her musical dream. It's a mystery to me. But I can tell you this. Whenever I hear the song Just Once uh, by James Ingram, I think about this girl. And uh, I remember the magical time that we spent together under a golden moon. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, were you a comic book kid? I mean, did you devour these things when you were young? Yeah, I was a huge, I am still a huge comic book kid. It's okay. <laughs> this is another thing that I, like, I remember reading Incredible Hulk comics when I was a kid. I remember some Superman, but I was never deep into it. I was never in comic book stores. That was that just wasn't my thing. How does it work? Like, how does it, how do you fall into it? How does it happen? Well, I think it helps that I had a little brother who, uh, you know, liked comic books and had like a a pull selection, you know, every month, like there was the comic book store that he would go to that would, he would have these, his selects and they would pull them for him and he would have like a bag that then he would go get. And so I read all of his comic books. Um, but I was obsessed with Tintin when I was younger. And of course, like I was madly in love with Batman because of, uh, the television show. I actually invited Batman to my, um, fourth birthday party, FYI. And, uh, he did show up. I was very excited. Wait, what? The real Batman? No. Okay. Someone dressed. I thought it was the real. (laughs) So, I mean, basically what happened was that I sent an invitation to Batman. To Adam. Was it Adam West? Well, no. I sent it to Batman. Oh, okay. (laughs) And uh, my mom was like, oh, you know, I don't think that Batman is going to be able to come to your birthday party. I was like, oh, no. Batman totally loves me. He's totally (laughs) coming to my birthday party. And so my mom didn't know what to do. So she sewed a Batman costume for my dad. (laughs) 
Oh. My dad showed up. And I didn't realize that it wasn't Batman until this guy, David McPhillips, was like, that's not Batman, that's your dad. <laughs> it's your dad in a unitard. Exactly. <laughs> but it was okay. Turned out fine. So you and you kept up with it. I mean, the comics, yeah. conti- the comic book obsession continues to this day. Yeah, to this day. Yeah. So anyway, so Batman. So at four, I was in love with Batman, and so then I started reading uh, all these Batman comic books that I'd gotten. Like people would give me Batman comic books, and then, you know, and then fell in love with Superman, and then my brother started reading comic books, and so and then I was Tintin and Asterix, you know, uh, Lucky Luke. Um, because of my French sort of connection and Archie, whatever. And then uh, uh, just continued and then discovered Vertigo, you know, Sandman and Animal Man and Preacher and uh, all that. And um, and then, you know, it got too expensive for me to, you know, follow. And then when I was living in Canada, there was actually a lot of things. They, they um, This cafe that I was working at, they did these live comic book jams where they would have all these, like, um, comic book artists come and do, like, a live comic book. They'd give them a poster board, and then they would do a live comic book thing. And it was, it was really great people, like, you know, like Seth and, I don't know, like Julie Doucet and, like, all these people. And so... Um, so I was introduced to a lot of the sort of indie comics when I was, you know, living in, in Montreal. And then, uh, and then DC called Vertigo, Shelley Bond, and was like, um, we're thinking of doing this line for girls called Minx, and we're, one, we're looking for a YA author, and we're wondering, someone said, you like comic books, because my first novel, Boy Proof, is about a girl who's obsessed with comic books and post-apocalyptic science fiction films. And she was like, we read it. We thought maybe you'd like to write a comic book. And I was like, yes. Done. I have ten ideas. What, <laughs> <laughs> when do you need it by? Because I'd always like looked at the Vertigo page on like how to submit to be, because it was a, sort of this idea of something I wanted to do one day, but... Um, it was very complicated, and I didn't understand, like, how do you get in? So once they called me, I was like... That's nice. Yeah. How often yeah. does that happen? Like, never. Yeah. Or once. Once. <laughs> we'll take it. Or twice, know? I guess, you know, because I, mean, I never knew that someone would ask me to write an opera. Yeah. I'm available for commissions. There you go. You can be had, you know, for, for the right price. Now, uh, just to go back a little bit, because you are so busy and because you do... I mean, how many books have you published now? Ten? Nine. Nine. Okay. So when you sit down to work, do you do it at the same time every day? Are you counting words? Like, how do you discipline yourself? No, I like to, uh, I'm the kind of person that thinks that you should, the page is always open. So, um, I leave the page open all day and I sort of come in and out, you know, to, to it. Uh, I don't have like a set writing time, but I'm very, very, um, I really like deadlines. You know, my editors laugh at me because they're like, okay, well, whenever you can get it to me, I'm like, no, give me a day. <laughs> right, and a time. <laughs> yeah, I don't care if it's fake for you. For me, it's real. So, um, and I, I pretty much always, you know, I'm very, very good about deadlines. And because I do so many different things, the, I guess the part that I'm disciplined about is that um, – if I say, okay, well, I've got six weeks to write this book or I've got six weeks to do this particular project, that's what I'm doing during that time. Like I really try to time it so that I give myself, you know, a chunk of time to devote to just that one lovely idea. And you can stay focused on it. Yeah, right? exactly. And so and I try to clear the plate a lot of times, you know, like, okay, well, I've got all these little tiny things that I have to do. I'm going to clear all those things so that for two straight weeks, I'm only going to work on my novel or whatever. Well, and how long does it take you to write a book typically ballpark? Well, I guess it, I guess 
I guess two years, I guess a year and a half. I mean, it really depends, but I mean, I guess pretty much I write a book a year because I have pretty much a book a year coming out. Okay. So you, but I mean, when you, then why do you say two years? You mean two years then to publication? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, well, maybe a year and a half, you know? But I mean, if you're working full time and you're writing full time, that it's, I mean, it's hard to say some people are super slow and it's like every nine years they publish a book, but it's really good. Yeah. But I mean, if you're working 50 hours a week writing, I mean, you would think that you'd be able to produce at least a few hundred decent pages in a year. Yeah. I mean, and, and also, I mean, I mean, everybody's got their own sort of thing, you know, and, and, you know, I, like I said, I try to really make it so that all I have to do is write and be an artist and create. So I have the luxury, even though I don't have the money to actually <laughs> eat right now. Um, I have the luxury of, um, of, of being able to leave that page open and not saying like, okay, well, I've got, you know, I've got to get to work at 9am. So I have only an hour from seven to eight while I'm drinking my coffee to work on my book or, you know, I'm not teaching classes or, you know, or, or, uh, and, and you, that's what you're, I mean, you want it narrowed down to just that. Like you have no, if someone said, we want you to teach a class, would you teach it? Or you're like, no, I just want to do the books. I just want to do the books. I don't want to teach. Yeah. I don't, I just want to, yeah. Focus on that. That's it. It's nice. There's no bullshit. There's nothing. You run your own show, even when it's a little hairy sometimes. Yeah. I mean, and it wasn't always that way, I'm imagining, right? I mean, has it always been this way? Have you always managed to find a way for the last however many years? Like, yeah, I pretty much, I've always tried to never have a job. Good for you. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I used to, um, you know, temp or, uh, uh, you know, extra on movie sets. Um, that was a great job for a writer because you sit there all day, they feed you, just have my little notebook and write. Um, uh and then I would do it and I would do it for like three weeks and then I would give myself a week and a half off to write or two weeks off to write. And, you know, it was always like, okay, well, if I work this amount, then I can give myself a month off to, you know, to write. So, um, yeah. So you're just all in. All art, all the time. And you have to, but I mean, do you feel like you have to have that level of commitment in order to make it? No, I think for every single person, it's different. I mean, that's the choice that I've made. I mean, I, I, I've known since I was a little girl, that's all, that's all I want to do. So I guess, I mean, it, you know, it could be very stupid what I do. I mean, you know, I, I would like to have a new couch at some point. I'd, I'd like to have some coffee in my house right <laughs> now, you know, I'm sadly lacking in tea, you know, but, um, you know, so maybe it's, it's a silly choice, but but it's the choice that I've made. I've, I've just sort of decided that I was going to do this and that the world would just follow me and make it work out somehow. And, you know, it does work out. I mean, I get frustrated sometimes because I'd like to, you know, it's like I'm now a lady of a certain age and I'd like to have a little bit more luxuries, you know, maybe get a manicure every once in a while, you know, I don't know. Right. You know, have a little bit more Cosmo teeny girl time with my friends, <laughs> you know. But, um, but ultimately, I mean, it, this is really just all I want to do. You love it. And you've known since you really have known since you were a girl. Yeah. Like how young? Four. Wow. And you, I mean, and what is the memory concrete? Wait, I'm going to say seven, okay. but I think four really, it probably is true. Um, because, uh, that was when I saw, uh, my mom likes to tell this story where, um, she came into the living room and I was like three or four and, um, uh, 
I was crying hysterically and I was watching PBS and um, I was like, oh, mom, this is the saddest story I've ever seen. And it was uh, it was uh, the Trojan women, um, you know, in ancient Greek on PBS with subtitles, but I couldn't read. And my mom was like, how do you know what's happening? I was like, and I told her the whole story. And my mom was like, this girl is not going to be a scientist. Right. <laughs> She should be an artist. So, so she really encouraged me in that in that direction and stuff. So, but um, for me, and this is a well documented story. But uh, I saw Star Wars, you know, when I was seven, and uh, uh, at the end when Darth Vader goes spinning off, um, I knew that there was. It was the first time that I understood that there was going to be another story, like another movie, and someone's job was to tell that story, and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write the second Star Wars movie. <laughs> <laughs> Aim high. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I mean, because Star Wars was big for me. I think just our generation, yeah. that age, like that was a huge. Yeah. That, ta- that story, that yeah. particular myth yeah. just gets into people's bones. Yeah. It's it weird. It just captured my imagination and I just, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And every single thing that I've done since then has been to, to be where I am now, like to write stories. Okay. So t- take me through it. Did you go to, did you go to school to study this or did you just start writing right out of high school? Like what happened? In a way. I mean, I thought I was going to be a filmmaker. Um, so, uh, I, uh, wanted to go to NYU because I thought that was a more serious film school than USC, but grant you, I was 11 when I decided made this decision. <laughs> so NYU was the only school that I applied to for college. And, um, and, uh, I got in and, uh, but, uh, I'd called them when I was like 12 and they were like, you have, you have to go to high school first. And I was like, what? I have to go to high school? Right. So I decided to not waste my time. So I went, I applied to, um, the high school performing arts to LaGuardia in New York city and, uh, to become uh, a better actor's director. So I went for theater. So you were a really like precocious little girl. I don't know that I was that precocious. Well, I mean, call, <laughs> calling NYU when you're 12. Yeah, I don't know. It just seemed normal <laughs> to me. Right. Um, so, uh, so I, uh, so yeah, so I went to performing arts for theater um, and to learn, you know, and to me that was the same thing. It was like, you know, actors and stories and stuff like that. And so I think that's, it all sort of became part of the same thing. And I think that's why now it's like, I just love, I don't care how a story is told. I just don't care. I just want what to form stories. it comes yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. To me, it's just sort of like, you know how artists pick up like they can go, oh, today I'm going to do watercolors on my picnic with my friends, or you know I'm going to use my charcoals or my pencils or whatever. It's like to me that's the different ways that you can tell a story. It's just like picking up a different artistic instrument. So yeah, yeah, and I think that's sort of silly when people start to get exclusive or. You know, or they just completely shut the door. I mean, maybe they need to do it just to keep their focus or something. Yeah. But. I mean, maybe they do. I mean, I've definitely had friends, you know, who have not been supportive. And they're like, well, Cecil, I could, I can only support you in one, choose which kind of thing <laughs> you want to do. And then I will support that. And I'm kind of like, you know what? Screw you. Like, why do I have to choose just one thing? Yeah. You know? It's all fun. To me, it's all the same thing. So... Well, now what? Now what were you like in uh, film school? Uh, I was a little bit a- too avant-garde for NYU. I remember this one teacher was like, "You better hope that you know you better you're never going to be a Hollywood filmmaker. You know, you better hope that you become a successful experimental filmmaker." Which at the time I was kind of mad because I was like seventeen and I was like, 
What kind of, I mean, what do you mean experimental film? Oh, I don't know. I mean, like, I would do things like, I would, like, film myself crying over a boy and, like, you know, I, I really like, like, you know... Stan Brackage and Boudoir. Well, see, I, like, went to, I went to film school at Colorado, so Stan was there. Oh, yeah. I sat next to him once. Stan Did Brackage. you? Yeah, there was this experimental film congress in Toronto in 1989, and uh, and uh, my friend Skillet uh, kidnapped me, and we went there together. And, uh, and I mean, everybody was fighting. It was like the, every, old school and new school and, like, whatever. And so we're watching the Stan Brackage film at one point, and Stan Brackage is sitting next to me. I didn't even know what part of the body they were showing, like, on the film. And I thought I was going to, like, pass out. But I thought, I can't pass out because Stan Brackage is sitting right next to me. So then afterwards, I was, like, talking to him. And, and I was like, oh, I'm in film school. He was like, you know what you should do? You should quit. <laughs> is that what he said? Yes. And I love it. And so, okay, so I was, I was like the opposite. I went into the University of Colorado just not even wanting to be in school. That's where I was when I was 18. I hate to say it, but that's, I just wanted a break. I would have been the perfect candidate for a gap year. Right. I needed a gap year. I was burnt out. But at the same time, I was glad to be in college and like having fun. And I picked my major as film because I was the same way. I wanted to tell stories. Cinema was sort of dominant in my childhood in some ways. And I signed up for film classes, not even knowing that the University of Colorado is, you know, the film school is all about avant-garde. It was like, you know, Stan Brackage and the whole thing. So, of course, I had no idea who he was until I got there. And to be honest with you, didn't fully appreciate his greatness until I was gone. I hate to say that, but it's true. No, but that's normal. I think that just happens all the time, you know? Yeah. And And that's cool. But, yeah, but he was, you know, he was always, like, walking around campus and he had his, like... You know, he's always he would chew in class. That right. was like little things you remember. He was a little surly. That's what I remember about him. He, he was, was a little surly, surly and really prolific and like self-made. And uh, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of his. Um, the, like the what do you call them? The hand-painted films. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Like that series to yeah. me is just. I think the one awesome. that I saw had to do. There was a birth in it. There was like a window water baby yeah, movie. Yeah, window water. That's exactly the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one where you almost passed out. Yes. That was the okay. So this is it. <laughs> this is okay for everyone listening. Like this film, window water baby moving, is one of. I want to say it's an earlier. You know, it's in an earlier phase of Brackage's career, and it really amounts to. One of that's got to be one of the first live childbirth films because in his generation, uh, you know, men didn't go into the delivery room with a camera, yeah, and you know they didn't do that, and so he filmed on I believe Super Eight or maybe Sixteen, yeah, you know, the birth of one of his children. He made this like beautiful avant-garde film about it, but it's extremely graphic. I mean, so it, graphic. <laughs> so okay, like intro to film. University of Colorado, 1993. I'm like, or you know, spring of 1994. I walk into this class, like, ready to, like, learn how to become the next, like, Martin Scorsese or right. whatever. And all of a sudden, I'm watching this child be born. I mean, the whole classroom was just like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. But I think that, like, you know, so anyway, I, ha- I ended up having to drop out of uh, NYU because of money. Because I didn't have enough money. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it always comes back to that. And I was very, very upset. So I accidentally had a gap year. And um, so what I did was I woke up one day. I was living in Montreal because my parents had moved back to Montreal. And I woke up one day and I was crying. And I was like, oh, my God, you know. I'm 19, and what if I never go live in Paris? I'm going to Paris, so because Boonwell was in Paris, so I uh, <laughs> because at this point I'd fully embraced that I was just going to be experimental, and um, 
so I, uh, I bought, I like a month later, I got myself a job as an au pair in Paris and, uh, bought myself a plane ticket and went to Paris. Cause I was like, if I don't do this now, I'll wake up and I'll be 40 and I'll never have lived in France. <laughs> so I did it. I lived in, i lived in Paris for a year, but, um, and how did you like it? I loved it. Oh my God. I loved it. And so, but I thought, so I got there and you know, to be an au pair, you had to like take French class or whatever. And, and I was like, I already speak French, you know? So I found this theater conservatory um, called L'Ecole Florent, and uh, they had trained uh, Christopher Lambert and Isabella Johnny and Francis Huster and all these, like, fancy French actors. And I was like, I could go there. So I auditioned, and I got in, and I studied theater for a year at this, like, prestigious conservatory in Paris. So and wait, so you during the day you're au pairing? Is that a verb? During the day, yeah. And during the day I was studying theater. Okay, don't, during the day you're studying theater. And then when were you with the kids? I, I, I picked him up at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and was with him from 4 till 9 every night. Oh, okay. Well, that's not that bad. Yeah. And they put you up? They may... Yeah. Um, the first place that they, um, that they gave me, I picked it because I liked the name of the street that they lived on, but they lived in uh, the banlieue, which is the suburbs, and it was called Rue de la Cherche Midi. Okay, yeah. And I thought, oh, that's great. And then... Uh, what does that mean? Uh, is there a translation? The, the, the road for looking for noon. The road looking for noon, okay. road looking for noon. And, uh, and then... But they were mean. And they were like, well, you have a curfew. You have to be home in by 8 p.m. every night, whatever. And I was like, I didn't come to Paris to have a curfew at 19. That's ridiculous. So I went to the au pair agency and I was like, I was like, uh, I don't like my family. I need a new family. And they were like, well, you signed a contract. You can't leave. And so I was just like, you know what? I can leave. That's exactly what I can do. I can leave the country. <laughs> like, I don't have to. Right. You know, and so then they're like, they were like, well, what do you want? And I was like, I want my own apartment in Paris, in the center of Paris. And they were like, okay. And then they found me this family, and I had my own apartment, like, a block away from the family. It was awesome. That's, see, good for you. Yeah. You asked for what you wanted. So you were right in the middle of Paris? Like, what Aaron Dees? I, uh, I was in the 13th on Boulevard de l'Hôpital. It was called Rue Watteau. It was a very cute little studio apartment and stuff. And it was great. So I studied theater for a year in Paris. And um, and that just sort of fueled more of my love of stories and um, and stuff. And, and, um, and then I had to figure out what to do. And I didn't want to not go to NYU because it was the only school that I'd ever thought of going to. But uh, instead I went to uh, – I gave in and I decided to apply to Concordia University, which is um, the film school in Montreal. But uh, they rejected me because I went in for my interview and I had such an attitude problem because I was like, yeah, I was at NYU. Like, I guess I'll grace your tiny little <laughs> film school with my presence. And um, so they didn't accept me. Um, that So they didn't accept me into film production. And then I was like, I, that was sort of like a wake-up call. Like, maybe you shouldn't have an attitude problem. And so I went... Uh, for half a semester, and I just took um, uh, film studies classes, and then after that half semester, they they allowed me into the film production, and they were like, "Yeah, you had an attitude problem. <laughs> we didn't we didn't like the cut of your jib." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then I graduated, and it was fine. You know, like it was it was great. They gave me an award, and it was all good, and you know whatever. What was the award? Um, 
best experimental <laughs> narrative. <laughs> best attitude. Yeah, best attitude. So, uh, okay, so you're from Canada. Well, I'm from New York, but my parents are Canadian, and so I'm double. Oh, you are? Okay, yeah. but New York City? Yeah, I grew up in New York City. Oh, wow, I didn't, okay, I thought you'd That's why up... I went to the Performing Arts High School. Oh, uh, okay, see, I had it in my head that you were, like, from Montreal, but then you had gone to... But you know the fame high school just like yeah. As a no, my parents are research scientists, both of them, and they were doing their postdocs in New York, and they had me and my brother, and then they moved back to Montreal the day I graduated from high school. Oh, okay. So okay. So, uh, growing up in the city, uh, in the Bronx, yeah, in the Bronx, and what what was that like? Uh, well, I lived in Riverdale, so it's the North Bronx, <laughs> it's the Soft Bronx, <laughs> um, and uh, it was great. I mean, I love I love New York City, and um, uh, for me, it was. Um, you know, I, I took, um, my parents are very cultured and so, you know, we'd go to museums all the time and to the ballet and to the opera and to the theater. And that was just always a part of every single moment of my life. And, um, and then when I was in high school, I would just, you know, I, I had heard from one of my, um, my acting teachers, he was like, well, if you're serious about art and serious about theater, then you must go to the theater at least once a week. And I took that very seriously. So in high school, like every week I went to go see a play or two, you know, and, um, and I was, oh, I basically lived in a repertory cinema house, like just watching like old movies, like, you know, double features. Like, who, who are some of your favorites? Uh, old Old or just directors, yeah. Who? Oh well, um, uh, uh, Powell Pressburger, some of my you know favorite films, uh, uh, Hitchcock, uh, Bunuel. Um, I don't know. I hate that question. I know. I I, <laughs> I, I, I was silently, yeah. silently feeling bad for asking, but I'm just curious. You <laughs> Thank know, you. I like everything. Yeah, that's a good answer. Except for the things that I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, uh, and your parents, you said, are both research scientists. Yeah. So you don't come from a familial tradition in the arts. They're, no. they're scientific. Yes. Like what kind of science? Uh, my dad's a neurobiologist. Um, and my mom's a, a molecular biologist or genetic engineer. Okay. So you come from big brains. Big brains. Big yeah, brains. My brother's a scientific journalist. Okay. Yeah. And you're just like sort of the anomaly in the family. Yeah. Although I kind of think that it's the same thing, art and science, you know, because I think you have to be creative to kind of figure out, well, how does the brain work? Yeah, no, there's an art to science and a yeah. science to art. Yeah. Maybe. So I think it's the same thing. And I think um, they, you know, they had to really fight very hard against their parents to become scientists. Um, you know, it was sort of like, why do you want to become a scientist? You become a doctor or a dental technician or, you know, something practical or right. a housewife or, you know, um, whatever. And so I think when my when I said to my parents, like, well, I'm going to be an artist, they were like, okay. Good luck. <laughs> That's good. Cool. That's good, though. Yeah. I think that was the best thing about selling my first novel was that, you know, for so long, I I mean, for so long, I had, like, said to my parents, I'm going to be an artist one day. So actually selling my first book, it was like I had proved to them that all of their faith in me had been worth worth it. Oh, totally. the best. Well, and the worst are all those years where you're, like, in your apprentice phase or whatever it is, and you're, like, going home for the holidays, and it's like, how's the book coming? Yeah. You know, when's it going to be done? Yeah. Like years of it. I went through that. It was yeah, terrible. Terrible. Um, so the fame high school, mm -hmm. you went there. Yes, I did. Four years. Four years. So what is, give me, what is it like? Take me through a day in the life of a fame high school student. 
It's like what the what is it called again? Now it's called the LaGuardia High School of the Arts. Okay. Um, well, it was uh, it was it was great. Um, you know, you you go there, and it's from all the boroughs. Uh, in you know in New York, uh, so you're you know you, everybody comes in. It's not like you're zoned high school, and so everybody wants to be there pretty much because you audition to get in, and you have a desire to like you know do talent. And at the time, it wasn't like nowadays where um, I think they have a lot more of a permissive attitude towards sort of auditioning for um, things outside of school. When we were there, they really like the theater department was like. We are a conservatory. This is serious. You are getting training here. You can't, you know, if you want a career, then you start that after you graduate from high school. And we used to have like a little rivalry with the professional children's school, which was, um, you know, just sort of a, a, like around the corner. And there are these two tables at this coffee shop, the theater coffee shop, where we'd always go and get like our French fries and gravy after school. And um, and they'd sort of be like, huh, you guys, you know, you're not even working. It's like West Side yeah, Story. Yeah, and like, and we'd be like, huh, you guys aren't even training, you know. Then, then you have like a dance off or something? Yeah, we did. We had we, we had an <laughs> act off. And uh, But it was it's interesting now thinking about it because those kids who are like, you know, uh, tormenting us with our we're not working it was like christian slater and uh, uh martha plimpton and anthony michael hall and like you know all these like actors that we knew you know and um and on um, in my group it was like me uh jennifer aniston Chaz bono <laughs> you went to school with those people yeah wow and so it was like uh you know it, it you know it turned out fine i think everybody got some good careers and it, were you buddies with jennifer aniston in high school did you guys like run around together yeah yeah she was one of my closest friends yeah no shit yeah i actually weirdly just i hadn't seen her in like 20 years and um the other night i was at the robert downey jr american cinematheque ball and um she was one of the presenters and she was walking by and i was she looked at me and i looked at her and i was like hi jen it's Cece," and she was like oh my god and so we had like a big hello after 20 years i mean you know we're not having coffee or anything like that you're, but, you're um, not no but she's i mean she's lovely it was she was very, she seems like a nice yeah. normal person so, well well adjusted right in high school she was Totally normal, yeah. well-adjusted girl. Yeah. So what did you guys do? I mean, not to get, to, I don't want to get too gossipy, but I mean, like, were you guys going around, like, running around the city, going to, like, bars and stuff? Or what, what did you do? No, I always got carted at bars because I was so tiny. Right. <laughs> so right. if they did, all the, all, the, all the girls, they did that without me because I always got us caught, <laughs> <laughs> which, which led to a lot of my teenage angst. Um, uh, no, we, we used to take uh, dance class at this place called Steps in New York, and I would sleep over her house. I think it was like every Tuesday we would take a uh, dance class at Steps, and she lived uh, on the Upper West Side, and um, so we would uh, so I would sleep over her house on Tuesday nights, and we'd take this uh, dance this jazz class with this guy named Jojo. That was our teacher's name. He had a plastic hip. That's all I really remember. <laughs> and uh, and um, and we, you know, we. Um, had a, we had a lot of fun. We used to eat these like special sandwiches that her mother made that had like this weird Greek cheese and uh, mayonnaise. It was basically just a mayonnaise sandwich. That's what we would eat. I can't do. I can't do mayonnaise. I can't but, do it. But you know, here's the funny thing is that I sometimes still think about those sandwiches. I'm like, God, you know. I wonder if I'm ever going to have a special sandwich ever again in my entire life. <laughs> That's the one thing I actually would have liked to have asked Jennifer the other night. <laughs> well, Jennifer, if you're listening, please contact Cece. Is that what you were yeah. known as? Yes, I need the I need the recipe. No, no. Okay, so you're at the you're at the Fame School. Are you a, are you a good singer? 
Yes, I am. You can sing. Was, yeah. Oh, that's right. You were in a rock band. band. Yeah. Oh my. So you gone... remember? Yeah. Remember? I'm sorry. When I was in college, and then uh, and then I was in a rock band. Okay. Okay. So you've gone through a lot of different creative evolutions. So rock band, tell me about this. So uh, I was working in this vegetarian co-op cafe. I think I was talking about the cafe earlier, and uh, um, there were there were some girls. Like basically, all the girls that I knew had boyfriends who were in bands, and um, they wanted to start a band, but none of them wanted to sing because they were too afraid of singing. And so um, they asked me if I would be the singer because I was a loudmouth. And I said, "All right, I'll, I'll sing as long as I can, as long as we can write a song called Ew, I Kissed Him' because I'd kissed this boy, and then I decided <laughs> he was gross." Uh, that's an awesome song. Yeah, it's called and, "Ooh, I Kissed Ew, Him." Ooh, I kissed him, and um. <laughs> And, uh, uh, so we, uh, we started a band. We didn't know how to play our instruments. I didn't even have an instrument. I just sang. And, uh, our first rehearsal ended because Nancy, so Julie was playing an acoustic guitar. Denise was playing an unplugged bass and Nancy had a plastic ladle and a soup pot. That was her drum. And, uh, our first rehearsal ended when the ladle exploded. (laughs) Um, but, uh, but we did really, really well. And, you know, we put out seven inches and a a cassette because this was like sort of before, this is right when the CDs were sort of, you know, so this is like early nineties, early nineties. Early nineties. And what was the name of the band? Bite. Bite. Mm-hmm. That sounds. That's, yeah, it was good. It's aggressive. Yeah. Was it kind of what kind of music? Um, it was it was punk rock. It was like you know, sort of naive punk girl music. Um, it was it was a little heavier than what I ended up doing afterwards. But then they kicked me out, and uh, that Whoa. was sad. I know it was very it was very sad. It's like Van Halen. Yeah, it was terrible. And uh, uh, so then I was like, well, I know what I'll do. I'll learn how to play the guitar. <laughs> and I'll sing my own songs. <laughs> and uh, because I'm obsessed with Star Wars, um, I started a band called Nerdy Girl, where I wrote a song about Star Wars. And uh, and so and then I did that, and actually, you know, ended up putting out like two CDs and a bunch of seven inches, and going on like a bunch of tours across Canada and the U.S. and, you know, had a lot of college radio love. And solo? Like solo artist with a band or what? Solo, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, like I I was the songwriter, but like I had people, you know, help me and stuff. And Did you have a backup band mm-hmm. when you toured? Sometimes, and then sometimes I would play by myself. Wow. Yeah. So can you tell me the lyrics to Ooh, I Kissed Him? Do you uh, remember them? Oh, my God. Uh <laughs> No, I no. don't remember that. <laughs> but I remember that it was like, ew, I kissed him. <laughs> so uh, can people get your music still? Is it yeah, still out can, there? you can get, not Bite, um, not yet. I think eventually there are plans to like put it up on um, iTunes. But uh, you can get Nerdy Girl or Cecil Seaskull. That Those are the two other names that I played under. Um, they're on iTunes or, you know, whatever music things you can get so that phase the rock star phase did that cohen did that overlap with writing stuff were you writing books and working on that and films i mean like how did this all kind of fit together um well i knew that i wanted to write books like i always said i wanted to write books while i was in the bands you know and then um and then what happened was that uh i moved out here because i was on a label here called no life records they were on santa monica um and uh formosa uh, and they had a label as well as uh, a record store. And, um, so they had asked me to move out here because it would be easier to work my record. And, um, and then for my second record, uh, I, I, in Canada, I was on cargo records, cargo Canada and, um, and cargo went bankrupt and then no life went bankrupt. And then 
my other label, Teenage USA, with my sec- third album that was supposed to come out, went bankrupt. And so I was like, okay, you know what? And now I quit music. Done. <laughs> now I'm done. So now I'm going to be a writer. And so and so that's what I started concentrating on. Wow. So when you were touring, yeah, you're playing small clubs? Yeah, small clubs, cafes, sometimes big clubs. And just getting up there and playing the guitar and singing? Yep. Wow, so you're talented. I don't know that I'm talented. But you can do multiple things. I just sort of feel like, why not do it? Yeah. The worst that can happen is that you don't like it. Well, so did you, were your parents, I mean, you seem like you're, uh, I mean, you have like a, an optimism to you. Is I, that fair? Is that fair? You know, it's funny because someone said that the other day to me. They were like, wow, you're a really hopeful person. And I, I don't feel like that. I don't feel like I'm optimistic or hopeful at all. I feel like I'm so dark. But, um, <laughs> but my suspicion, since everyone says that to me, is that perhaps I am. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's not a bad thing. No, I, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just that's not how I, I don't see myself like that. Right. But like internally, you're fairly happy. I guess so. I mean, look, I'll be honest. Every day, even after the mailman comes, I open up my mailbox and think, maybe someone slipped a note in my mailbox. <laughs> like what? For what? I don't know. <laughs> There's never anything there. But you check it. Every day. Like a kind of OCD? It's not OCD. It's just like, I think like, well, it would just be the most spectacular, wonderful thing in the world if someone <laughs> left me a little note in I'm my I'm going to leave you a note. <laughs> it's done. I'm coming over. Okay. Um... So the, okay, so music to books, you yeah. throw, you put the guitar down, mm-hmm. you have like a Pete Townsend moment, you shatter your guitar on stage, walk off, mm-hmm. and then you start writing the next day. No, yes. Uh, no, I would started writing a little bit. I guess the uh, I knew that I wanted to write kids' books, and I knew that I run, wanted to write YA. Okay, so stop there because this is fascinating to me. Like I can't write YA. I'm not a YA person, but I'm, I'm fascinated with it. And I want to know, how did you know? How did you know I'm going to write YA? Is this what you read? Like, give me the, give me the, your take on YA and how it happens creatively. Well, I mean, like, I think that every YA author probably has a different answer, but I think that there are two main things that we can probably all agree on. A, I think, um, YA is when you fall in love with reading. So I know that's when I fell in love with reading, when I was about 11 or 12. Um, and B, I think that everybody has sort of a natural narrative voice that comes out. And I think that for a long time, mine was like 15, 16. And, um, and so that's just what came out naturally. And I thought it was cool. And that's what I wanted to do. And at the time, YA wasn't this big golden age thing that it is now. When I first started trying to write it, it was still sort of like this sort of very niche, you know, thing but um, why why is hot is it still hot it oh yeah yeah it's, it's still, still hot. yeah it sells yeah it sells yeah. yeah especially like you know fantasy um you know dystopian paranormal, paranormal teen romance teen romance exactly <laughs> i um, want to i want to try to write a paranormal teen romance do it i don't know how i gotta yeah, think on that i don't know how either that's why i just don't that, that's, that's a, why i don't make the big bucks no i was joking with someone the other day and i was like you know what if i could just like write a book about teenagers biting each other i would be that's it. Yeah. Teenagers biting each other. Yep. If you want to boil it down, if you can do it, but then, you know, it's easy to, to kind of feel smug about it and be like, "Ugh, this is shitty writing. And it's just a vampire book for kids. Could I do it? I have that. Con- I don't think I could do it. Well, you know, I mean, I think the thing is, is that if, if you have an attitude about something and you think that you should do it, 
you know what I mean? Like then it's going to suck. And so no one's going right. to read it. It's not from it's the like heart. It has to come from the heart. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I, I knew that I wanted to write and, um, I, uh, UCLA extension, I got the book in the mail, you know, whatever. And there was a, it said there was a class for writing for young people. And I was like, Oh, I want to take that class, but I was broke. And so I was like, well, I can't take that class. And then I threw the book on the thing and it opened up to this like grant for poor people to take a class at UCLA extension. So I was like, all right, I'll apply for that. So I applied for that and I got it. So, um, so, you know, the co- the cost of the class was only like $30. And at the time I didn't drive. So I had to take the bus. It was like, you know, all the way to UCLA from Silver Lake and then all the way home. So it was like two hours there, two hours back, four hour class. It was ridiculous. But I figured, well, you know what? The universe gave me this class for basically free. I really should write a book. So I did. I wrote, I wrote a book, um, to honor the universe giving me that class. Well, yeah. And, um, so I wrote this book called, uh, Chloe's Jam. And it was about a girl who's a classical violinist who ends up having to like spend the week weekend with this girl in her class whose uh, older brother is a famous punk rock star. And she hates, you know, uh, and she doesn't like punk rock, but then she learns what punk rock is. And then she realizes that she doesn't necessarily want to do classical music. She wants to just do music and music becomes this whole new bold thing for her because she's been introduced to punk rock. And I wrote it and, um, and, uh, uh, I, I had met when I was in my rock band, um, when I was in Nerdy Girl, I'd played CMJ and I'd gone out drinking this one night with this woman named Sue. And, um, she was like best friends with a good friend of mine. And she was like working at dial books for kids. And I was like, Oh, one day I'm going to write a kid's book. And, uh, and she was like, well, when you do, you can send it to me. So I did the thing that you're never supposed to do is I called her house, called (laughs) information in New York. This was like, Six years later, called information in New York and was like, hi, remember me? I got drunk with you at CMJ like six years ago. Like, uh, I wrote a kid's book. And she was like, okay, well, you can send it to me and my assistant will read it. And I was like, okay. And so I sent it to her and her assistant liked it. And so then she read it and she did three rounds of notes with me. And the first email was like, wow, this is terrible. It's it's just not it's a mess. It's a, a real mess, but you have a voice and I think you're a YA writer. And so that was just enough cheerleading to sort of get me, you know, I worked on the book a little bit more and then she got very busy because she was launching a new series called a series of unfortunate events with lemony snicket. Oh, and she got like really busy with that. Um, but it really gave me a lot of, um, confidence to say, okay, I'm on the right track here, you know? So, um, nothing ever happened with that book. So I wrote another book, nothing ever happened with that second book. And I wrote another book, nothing ever happened with that book. And I wrote a fourth book and that book was called boy proof. And that was the first book that I sold. Wow. So I just, you know, just kept slugging it out. Damn. And that's a common story. Yep. But I mean, just the, where did you find the, uh, strength to persist? Like, are you just, are you a competitive person? Do you feel you're competitive? Are you like, how do you, how do you process that? Or you just have like a deep confidence in yourself? I don't know. Cause like or, I said, like, I don't feel like I'm hopeful or optimistic or confident <laughs> at all. I feel like I'm a total wreck, right. but, um, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like I'm supposed to be an artist. And so I just. And I feel like 
you're just supposed to keep doing it. It's a calling. Yeah. It's like the priesthood. Yeah, it's like the priesthood. I'm, I'm not even kidding. I yeah, think it's sort it of is. similar. It I mean, is. You have to live like you're a right. monk. I mean, for Christ's sakes. I just, I just sort of feel like also it's like there are so many artists who I adore and admire who nobody gave a shit about them when they were doing their work. Like who? I, I mean, I don't know. Boone Will. Nobody liked him. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, people just... Van Gogh, you know? I mean, like, you know... It, that, Did you see that there was a thing on the news the yeah, other night about him? he didn't get... Kill himself? Yeah. It's yeah, weird. But, um, but anyway, I just sort of feel like that's your job as an artist. Your job as an artist is to make art and to not be concerned whether or not it's, you know, you doing a puppet show for, like, your cat or, you know, you're doing a puppet show for, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, the, you know, in, at Lincoln Center. Like, it doesn't matter. Art is art is art is art, and the point of doing it is to just do it. I don't know. No, I think there's wisdom in that. Yeah. You're inspiring me. <laughs> so, so fourth book sells. And, Fourth book sells and since then, there have been, I guess, eight, nine. Nine. Okay. So, are you ever tempted to revisit those first three? Did you ever revisit one of the first three, or once they were done, they were done? Um, uh, Chloe's Jam, which is the one, the first one that I wrote. Um, I actually would say that I revisited it in my third book, which is called Beige, um, because Beige is about a girl from Canada who has to live with her punk rock dad, and she hates music. And then her world is transformed by beginning to understand what, like, allowing punk into her life. And so I think that it wasn't so much that I wanted to revisit Chloe's Jam and um, and uh, and rewrite that particular story, but I think that there was some element in the story that I wanted to tell, and so I found a new way of telling that story, and one that I think was more successful and um, closer to my heart. And I actually used some pieces from. Uh, Chloe's Jam and the second book that I uh, never will see the light of day, which was called Walking Away from Wonderland, and I put them in beige. Yeah, so like they provided like some sort of foundation. Yeah, there was there 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 was stuff that was repurposed in them. Yeah. So why was it called beige, or why is it called beige? Um, because the main character, uh, her name is Katie, and uh, the girl that she gets stuck with during the summer is this girl Lake, who's the um, daughter of uh, the the singer of the punk rock band that. Um, Katie's dad is the drummer in and um and because Katie hates music um and wears pastels and Lake is like totally punk rock and plays guitar Lake is like oh my god you're like the beigest person on the planet gotcha so she's just so then that becomes her nickname but then she owns it she's like yeah I'm beige um so uh, what like a day uh I'm trying to think of how to transition like Working as a writer compared to working as a musician, did you find that you were less stimulated, more stimulated, totally different experiences? Like, it seems to me like if you go from, uh, you know, touring and making music and being kind of a rock star to suddenly like living this, because I know how it is, you know, sitting at your computer by yourself, by yourself, nobody's cheering you know, was it a tough transition or did you find that it just suited you? Uh, I think it was a natural transition. So it wasn't like, it wasn't that big a deal. I mean, I do miss the camaraderie of like being in a band. I loved jamming, you know, I mean, even though I hated going to jam, you know, (laughs) to rehearsal, like, um, I just loved the immediacy of like, 
you know, jamming with people or rather people jamming with me. Cause I'd be like, here's my song. You jam with me. I don't know how to jam with you. I don't even know what I'm doing on the guitar. But, um, but, uh, that's, that's sort of an adjustment, the social aspect of music. But, um, but then I get that when I do comic books now, you know, like I have, um, you know, I have the two comic books that I did. I've got two more coming out and they're like my swim buddies, you know, my artists. And right. so, you know, when we do like when me and Jim Rugg, um, who drew the plain Janes and Janes in Love, when we do comic book conventions and stuff and we're sitting together, it's like having, it's like having a band because it's someone else who cares just as much about those characters as you do. And I feel like that, like, um, you know, Nate Powell and Sarah Veron, who are the two people that I'm doing books with that are coming out, uh, next year and the year after that. Um, even now, like when I see them at, um, you know, at, at like Comic-Con or whatever, it's like, it's like, they're my, they're my, they're my bandmate, you know? So, (laughs) So now, what do you think of, I mean, I know this is like an, a, an issue that sort of gets beat to death, but with comic books, I think it's maybe a bit of a different um, angle. It's like, what what about comic books and the whole ebook thing? Like comic books and the iPad. That seems sort of like a match made in heaven, or do you feel like it's got to be paper? Or do you have a strong feeling one way or the other? I don't, because I feel like however people are consuming stories is good for all of us storytellers. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and plus, like, I think a comic book on an iPad probably looks pretty cool. I think so. I mean, I think that, that it's definitely, I mean, that there are, I haven't explored that very much, but I think that there are different ways of um, reading it. I think something that I've seen that was kind of cool is the way you can go from like sort of panel to panel. Um, but that becomes a different experience than reading a traditional, you know, paper comic book. Um but uh, I think maybe the one thing that they have to figure out is sort of the pricing issue. That's, yeah. That's, I think, the biggest problem right now. Well, and also creatively, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like there's got to be like avenues that open up into animation or interactivity. and. Yeah, but I mean, that's with everything, right? All ebooks, you know. Oh, now you can like click on this link, and there'll be a little video or whatever. Aren't yeah. they doing that with like on the road or something? Yeah, like that? I mean, you can do that. I think that like you know, I'm I'm not a big I'm not in favor of interrupting the text Me in a traditional, you know, prose book. Me neither. But like, and and maybe not even in a comic book. I don't I don't consume a lot of comics, but it's like. It seems like there could be some sort of hybrid form in comics in particular that might work. I think that there's, you know, I think that there's going to be new ways of telling stories with new technologies. I mean, look, I think that like, you know, video games is a new way of telling stories and narratives. So, I mean, are you, whatever. Have you done that yet? Or that's no. on your list? <laughs> I guess I guess I'll be doing that soon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Someone's going to call you. Yeah, call me. So, Bioware, I'm ready. <laughs> I've already played Dragon Age 2 three times. <laughs> <laughs> so now what about screenwriting? Uh, well, I mean, I did write that, you know, I did make that feature. Oh, right. Um, and, uh, but that wasn't like a traditional, um, like what I did was I, I had this experimental film collective at the, um, uh, at the Echo Park Film Center that I did for, um, like three years where we would make a, a film every six weeks. Um, and, uh, so I got, it, it would be based on a word or a phrase and then, and then everyone would have to write a five minute script and then we would, um, swap scripts so you get someone else's script and then you had four weeks to make a, a, a short five minute film based on that script and um i got based on somebody else's yeah okay and so i got excited about that because it's sort of practice making a movie every six weeks and so i thought well i want to do something longer so with that film with happy is not that hard to be um i asked a bunch of my friends that were actors two questions and then i wrote a script based on their answers and then i, I made sort of a a, a, a feature film for a uh, I think the final budget was twelve thousand dollars. What did you shoot it on? 
the XL2. Or no, the VL, I don't know, something. But it's video? I mean, you shot yeah, on high def? Yeah, high def, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this was fairly recent. Uh, it was like 2006, 2005, 2006. Shot in Los Angeles. Shot in Los Angeles. How, how long did you shoot? Like, was it like a 30-day? No, it was 10 days. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, it was pretty quick. Wow. Yeah. And was it, I mean, I feel like filmmaking, because even, you know, in film school, it overwhelmed me. Like, all the moving oh, yeah. parts and all the people and all the collaboration. It seems exhausting. Yeah, it was exhausting. I, I realized that um, when you make when you make a movie, uh, you should always work with friends. You should never work with friends, and be prepared because you're going to lose a friend. <laughs> yeah, it just gets intense. Yeah, and then I also realized that there's the movie that you write, and then the movie that you shoot, and then the movie that you edit, and those three things are not necessarily the same. It was, I mean, it was exhausting and tiring, but, you know, I'd be game to do something like that again. I'm not, you know, saying that I'll never do it again. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, I didn't get into any film festivals, but I got a lot of really nice personal rejections saying, like, we hope you'll make another movie one day. This was really, almost really good. Right, you know? right. So, which I find to be encouraging. I try to make sure that that everything that I do, that sort of creative that the cringe factor is low for my friends, you know, so that like they can like come and see my little play or my performance art piece or whatever the hell wacky thing I'm doing and be like, wow, that wasn't actually that bad. Like <laughs> that was pretty, that was pretty tolerable. I did not experience like, you know, deep pain watching it. <laughs> exactly. You know? Did, no, wait, one woman show stuff? Like you do that? Yeah. Oh, okay. So that, I did not know this. Yeah. You get on stage and perform. I have done that, yes. Like, and what was the context? What was it about? Uh, a couple of years ago, it was actually, I guess, a two-woman show. But um, uh, I did uh, uh, I did a, a show with this girl, um, Jen Sincero, and we did um, we did this show called Spinsters, and it was um, about us being modern-day spinsters. <laughs> and uh, and you know, we like we you know we showed pictures of our cats, and we drank a lot of tea, and. <laughs> Um, it was it was really fun, and then um, and then I also did this one woman show called The Shirt and Other Awkward Stories About Boys, and because I discovered that there was this one particular shirt that for like eight years, like every single guy that I liked had this particular shirt. What was the shirt? It was like this blue and um, yellow striped sort of short sleeve kind of looks like an old timey shirt but is not quite old timey. Who makes it? I have no idea. Anyway, I, I actually stole one from a gentleman that had one. Like I stole it. And uh, Did you, was I this during, was this during a romantic liaison? Kind no, of? he was just a friend. Oh, okay. And, like, I, I, saw I, it, I was like, picturing you like rolling out of bed and like tiptoeing out of the room, like sniffing it or something. <laughs> well, I'm sure I've done that. But, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but, uh, I will, I'm glad to say that, uh, I do not. And then I, so then I was confused because I was like, well, do I like the boy right. or do I like the shirt? Yeah. So I did a whole show on that. And so, okay. So this is interesting. What was, did you arrive at any conclusions about what it, what, what it was or why it happened that way? No, I, I I did not. I, I think I liked the shirt. I think that's what I liked. I think I liked the shirt. And it's it's symbolized or signified it's, yeah. something. It's signi- yeah, it symbolized the kind of like the kind of guy I thought I would like would wear that shirt. And what kind of guy was that? You know, kind of uh, well, very smart and um, talented and unique. Maybe slightly odd. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, someone who probably has a good appreciation of like grandpa sweaters uh likes music likes movies likes um star wars star wars yes. <laughs> likes uh you know 
just, I mean, I don't want them to be my twin or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I but, get it. Uh, but yeah, but now I think maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, uh, you know, that, like that, 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 that shirt, I don't need that shirt. That guy doesn't need to wear that shirt. Right. You know? And that's what you kind of, yeah. you, you got it out of your system with that show. got it out of my show. system, yeah. And it was called The Shirt? The Shirt and Other Awkward Stories About Boys. See, I think you should write, did you ever write it down? Did you ever write like an essay about the shirt or anything like that? Or tell the story in like a memoir? No. I think, I mean, All right. I'm fascinated. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so what's on you know what's on your agenda like would you have I mean you seem driven you seem to have like a sense of mission like this is who you are this is what you're doing when you do you plan your life do you plan your creative life do you set goals and stuff like that or, or do you just get up and do your thing every day and just like kind of intuitively feel your way through it well I guess part of it is intuitive and part of it is not planned and part of it is planned I mean like I think that like I have ideas about things that I'd like to do. You know, I have some ideas for some books that I'd like to write that I haven't, that are just embryonic right now. Um, I have, uh, uh, you know, I I really, I want to be more than just a YA author. I mean, I know that's what I'm known for, but like I've been working really hard on like writing short stories and genre fiction and stuff like that. So the new book that I'm working on right now, that's due very soon my first draft is um it's my first science fiction book okay um and it's uh you know it's a ya novel but it's sort of right on the bridge between ya and adult and um and it's basically casablanca retold and fractured um and a gold rush western book in two books um it's called the tin star and um so i'm working on that but it's set in outer space on a space station where the girl is rick it sounds like a, it sounds like an interesting like amalgam of a lot of different stuff. Yeah, and I, I think it's gonna it sort of marries a lot of things that I'm interested in, and so so I'm working on that, and um, and I think maybe me and Andre, the composer, I think it looks like we might get commissioned to write another opera together. So I'll do that, and I have a play that I want to write, and then another play that I want to write. And then I have a couple of books that I want to write, and then how does it work when you sit down? Do you start with like just like an idea? Do you do an outline? Well, I think it starts with a lot of crying. <laughs> Just weeping. <Yeah. laughs> For real? Yeah. Do you? I mean, like, what, you You just get upset about something, and then, like, that's what the seed of the thing is? It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like the story kind of, like, takes hold of me, and and then it rests in a part of my brain where I think love lies, and then it's like, bursts out of me sort of like Athena from Zeus's head as like a beginning and an end but it's not quite right and then I have to flesh it out and then and then it's just a lot of like turmoil or like weaving of magic you know like pulling all the threads together and then and then that's painful sometimes See, it's that's, sort of achy that's sort of like a really sweet and like beautiful way of saying it like you know I, I'll sometimes compare it to going to the bathroom <laughs> Like, you just got to go. It's like, get this thing out of me. Do you know what I'm yeah, saying? I, do know what I you're mean, saying. it's an awful way to say it, but I mean, like, sometimes it feels that way. Like, because you, uh, let, you know, we shouldn't go down that track. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> but I know what you mean. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's better to say that you're weaving magic, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So then you start uh, in that place. The story starts to, you know, like you said, like, rest in your brain in the place where love lies. That's really beautiful stuff. <laughs> Is that a haiku? No, I don't. Um, but uh, 
is it fully formed or is it just like, you know what I'm saying? It's just like an itch. It's like an inkling. It's, it's a like little... an itch. And it's like, I know what the beginning is and what the end is, I think. And usually I write that down and then I start writing scenes and they don't necessarily go in any order. And then I start shuffling them all around and then I'll write placeholders yeah. where I'll say, I know something here has to happen. And then I start sort of like just moving all the parts around. Where? On a board? No, uh, uh, in, you know, I use Scrivener. Yeah, you got me into Scrivener. Yeah, well, see? It's and it's good, changed huh? my life, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyone out there who's like mired in Microsoft Word, yeah. get get Scrivener. Yeah. What's it, like 45 bucks? Yeah. And it's worth it. So what I do is I'll like, you know, I'll have like, all, like in that one project, I'll have each chapter be a document. Yeah. And then I start writing that. And then I'll export it to Word and I'll print it out and read it or like I'll, I'll work on a draft and then I'll put it back. I'll start rearranging things. And then when I think I have something, then I'll put it back in a new project in Scrivener and then do chapters again. And then like, I mean, I, I've, and not every writer does this obviously. And perhaps once again, I'm foolish, but, um, I'll sometimes like with my first draft, like I'll send to my editor with placeholders and saying, I think this needs to happen here and this needs to happen here. And so I've got a skeleton of the book and then my editor and I can talk about, okay, what's working, what's not working. And then, and then, um, and then I can, because I know what the bones are. So I feel confident in the bones so we can have a good conversation. And then I go out and I start fleshing out the baby. That's what I call it. Yeah, I, I've used that before. Yeah. It's like you build the skeleton yeah. and then you do the cosmetics. Yeah. With First Day on Earth, which is my new book, um, I actually, you know, when I sent the first draft to David Levithan, who's my editor and, uh, or my old editor, Nancy Mercado is my editor now, but uh, David, I sent and uh, I wrote this one chapter. There was a placeholder and it was like something incredible is going to happen here. And, like, his note when he, like, you know, gave me, like, the um, his notes back, you know, uh, he wrote – because he had, like, sort of line edited everything else and even though I'd had my placeholders. And he was like, welcome to the climax of your novel. You better bring it here, Cecil. <laughs> and I was like, shit, he's right. Right. Because I was like – I just, like, was like, yeah, I know. This is it. This is the moment. But I don't know what that moment is yet. But I don't necessarily think that that should stop you from writing your book, you know? So – I just... How many drafts do you do? It seems like 12 million. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. It's so many. So can you write a first draft quickly? Like, can you sh- can a first draft for a novel shoot out of you in like six weeks? No, that's actually... The first draft is the thing that's the hardest. The first draft is the thing that makes me want to cry and give up and think, I don't even know why I'm doing this or why anyone's trusted me because I can't do it. And I write so many pages that are the wrong pages like they're wrong everything about it is wrong it's so frustrating and it's terrible and i'm ashamed and um but for me it's like once i get that skeleton in a form that is acceptable then i can really work it's like it's not it's like the first draft it's like sometimes i'll actually type and i'll actually just type and pretend that it's not happening to me do you know what i mean like i'll just be like whatever Whatever, I'm just typing, and I, I like j- just crap will be coming out. And I know that every word is wrong, but it's like if I can have all the wrong words on a page, then I know, then I can look at it and be like, okay, these are the wrong words. But if I have no words on the page, I'm completely panic stricken and frozen. So the first draft is horrible. It has to be, but I, that makes sense. Getting it externalized, like yeah. at least having something in front of you to, in front of yourself to evaluate, yeah. 
as opposed to having it all be just sort of like living in your head. And that's why I'm fine with like, not fine, but like, that's why it's like when I have the placeholders, it'll be like, oh, okay. At least I know where I, that's right. That feels right. Then when I've got that skeleton, then I, then I feel good about it. But yeah, I'm, I love revision. I hate, I hate writing a book. I hate it. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think anybody. I mean, I, I, there are a few people I know who really enjoy it. It's well, a, enjoy is not the word. You endure it. There can be moments of like elation. You do have some moments where it's like, oh, of course, creative ecstasy, yeah. where you're yeah. like, oh my god, yeah, I think I did that right. Yeah, that one sentence. Yeah, you know? or or like some sort of happy accident. Yeah, and that those are fun. Or like when things start, like when that weaving of magic like comes together, and you can start to that's see going the, to the bathroom. Like you know, <laughs> you know, it's like that's really that's really exciting. Yeah, of but I think people who like you know comes very blissfully and easy their first draft. I would like them to buy me a bottle of bourbon. <laughs> no, nobody likes those people. They have Nobody. they have no friends. Yeah. Um, well, tell what's the, the name of the new book once again? First Day on Earth. It, For, yeah. And it's available. It comes out November first. So. November. I'm assuming 1st. it's available now. It's available now. <laughs> well, uh, it's been great talking with you. Thank you. You too. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. Okay, there you have it, folks. That's Cecil Castellucci for the hour. Uh, wasn't that great? So enjoyable talking to her. Uh, she has a new novel out. It's called First Day on Earth. Go get it. You can also find her online at misscecil.com. Cecil is spelled C-E-C-I-L. And she's on Twitter. Her handle is at Miss Cecil. And she has a Facebook page. So if you want to Facebook her, go and do that as well. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed. At uh, Other People Pod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me and pour your heart out and tell me your secret dreams, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And, uh, you know, if you like the show and you want to support it and help keep it going, please consider joining the TNB Book Club. That's the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. To join, just go to the nervousbreakdown.com. That's my uh, online culture magazine and literary community. And click on Book Club in the menu bar. It's only $9.99 a month. That's it, $9.99 a month. And for that money, you get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. And better yet, I interview the book club authors on this program. So if you can't swing that, but you want to do something to help, uh, please go to iTunes and rate and review the show. This really does help. It only takes like a couple of minutes, and I would be enormously grateful for the assist. Uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song goodness. Check out killrockstars.com. And uh, other closing thoughts, secret dreams, late adolescence, experimental phases, uh, one's behavior in one's youth. And, uh, you know, it's funny to think about, and I, I do think it's worth being humiliated about some of that stuff, some of those choices. But, uh, you know, I should emphasize that I don't think it's worth being humiliated in a serious way. I just can't uh, bring myself looking back to take too much of life seriously. Uh, so, you know, there's humiliation and it's justified, but it's not humiliation uh, on the level of condemnation, if that makes sense. It's more just like, you know, holy shit, I can't believe I was such a moron. And, uh, you know, this goes back to something that I've talked about on this podcast before, where I think I've come to the realization that life is a never ending, uh, you know, process of realizing what an asshole you were three years ago. That's, that's what I think I've come to. That's it. You know, and especially 15 years ago, it just goes on and on. It never stops. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, I know that this means progress. It means that we're learning and we're growing. But, you know, on the other hand, it also means that we're, we're being assholes right now, if the rule applies. And three years from now, God willing, we'll be able to see it clearly and feel humbled. So thank you guys for listening. I appreciate it. I'll be back again soon. I'm going to go eat something right now. I'm very hungry. 
and I'm going to listen to some light rock on the stereo as loud as I possibly can. (laughs) 